Hi everyone and welcome to the second Remember a Charity podcast. Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen. Um, for those of you who perhaps didn't hear last week's podcast, uh, the purpose of these are to bring together experts to help answer and discuss some key questions on your behalf. Uh, obviously in this in these very strange times, uh, we at Remember Charity want to do whatever we can to help provide some guidance and support for our members. So introductions, I'm Lucinda Darby, I'm the Marketing Manager at Member of Charity. Um, I've probably met and spoken to many of you. Um, and with me we have, well not literally with me, we have uh, Claire and Michael. Um, do you both want to just introduce yourself and explain briefly what you do? Yep. So, uh, hi I'm Claire. Uh, I am, well I basically introduce myself and I'm always a bit of a legacy nerd. So um, I just love everything legacy related. So I am a legacy fundraising consultant working with charities large and small. Uh, but I've also got a bit of a um, ongoing interest I suppose in anything that is um, sort of the academic side of legacies. Having done a PhD a few years ago um, and trying to sort of keep my finger in the, in the pie as it were for the academic research in this space. So you'll get lots of uh, nerdy answers out of me. <laughs> Excellent. And I am Michael Clark. Um, I previously was the Legacy and In Memory Manager at the Cystic Fibrosis Trust and I uh, was pleased to sit on the board of Remember a Charity for five years. Um, and I am now the Head of Fundraising at St Nicholas Hospice Care in Bury St Edmunds, which covers uh, West Suffolk and Thetford. Lovely. Thank you both so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Um, so the topic of today's podcast is going to be stewardship. And I will be posing some questions to Claire and Michael on your behalf specific to this area and its related challenges at this time. So I will dive straight into the questions. So number one, and there's five questions, by the way, so you can uh, track where we are. Uh, number one, what should legacy marketers be doing at this time? And Claire, if you wanted to answer first. Yeah, well, I think, you know, given that we're, we're talking about stewardship, I think um, stewarding supporters is the, the really obvious answer and the, the, sort of the uncontroversial answer, really, to the, to the question. I think everybody um, that I've heard from in the sector is is agreed that actually really sort of um, thinking about our donors focusing on them and their well-being is is really important particularly as obviously our donors are likely to be that little bit older and therefore more likely to be in an at-risk group more likely to be isolating so um, you know that their well-being is potentially more at risk than um, the other charity supporters perhaps so, um, as you see, I, I promised you some nerdiness, and so this is where my nerdiness starts to kick in. Um, I took part in a webinar recently with the brilliant uh, Professor Jen Shang, who is part of the Institute of Sustainable Philanthropy. Uh, and she's already very interested, I suppose, in um, how fundraising generally interacts with donors and donors' well-being. And so she draws on a stream of, of research around well-being that um, and I'm not explaining it as beautifully as she would but essentially says we we get our sense of well-being from um, autonomy so the idea that we are free to make our own choices uh, from a sense of competence so we're good at things there's certain things that we're good at and a sense of relatedness so that we're connected with other people 
Um, and Jen's point was actually for you know donors in general are really going to be suffering in those areas because you know we're locked down we can't do what we want to do competence no one if we're honest really knows you know exactly what everyone should be doing at this point and then pretty obviously relatedness you know we're cut off from our social networks and so her point for again for fundraisers in general but I think it absolutely applies you know times two or three to legacy fundraisers was think about how we can um, create stewardship programs that help to enhance those three areas so um, giving donors choice helping them to understand you know what they are they're good at you know how their choices have made an impact on others for example in the past uh, and helping to connect them up so really thinking about yes you know stewardship is absolutely critically important at the moment um, and how particularly can we focus on those particular areas of of well-being within stewardship Thank you, Claire. Um, Michael, anything to add? Yeah, I, I agree with Claire entirely. I think, you know, the, the thing to do at this time um, is to steward our donors. And that, that's, you know, a very broad term. And it, it's a term that we've spoken about for years and years. But we, we find ourselves in unprecedented times where stewardship actually is more important than ever. It's the time to not look at kind of the, the quick wins. It's not time to say, how can we now suddenly convert people into being legacy donors, people who've included gifts in their wills. It's a time to sit back and look at what is the long-term proposition of this charity? Look at those donors who've told us that they've been interested in leaving a gift in their will or those donors who've said, yes, I have left a gift in my will and actually think that, you know, it's a two-way relationship. Um, we've spent a great deal of time in the sector looking at what do we want people to do for us? We want them to donate, we want them to fundraise, we want them to support our work and be our ambassadors and ultimately to leave a gift in their will. Fantastic for those people. We've now got to sit back, I think, and look at how can we support some of them at this time. If it's just showcasing to them the work that we're doing, then fine. Um, I suppose I'm in a privileged position working for a local charity that actually, you know, we know our donors um, incredibly well. And, and that's a very fortuitous position to be in. And, and certainly I've taken the, the stance with the staff that it's time for us to phone our donors and make contact with them and make sure that they're okay. You know, uh, what are their major concerns at this time? Is there anything that we can do to support them? Sometimes that, that two-way relationship um, is, is always fantastic, but sometimes there is a stance where you've actually got to go back the other way and forget fundraising as being the principal mechanism, but look at relationship building. Um, we care about the people who support us. We care about them, you know, in their general donations, the fundraising, and ultimately the gifts and wills, which we know makes up the bulk of our income. It certainly makes up around 25% of our voluntary income. We know across the sector, it's an incredibly important income stream, but those gifts come from individuals. And the better we can understand those people, and as I've always said for years, the better we've always been able to understand them, what motivates them, what motivates them to support us, what motivates them to support charities with the biggest gift ultimately that they're likely to make. 
the better we know those motivations, the better we can actually be speaking with them, looking after them in these times and giving them actually the insight into what's happening in the charity sector at this time. Because I think that's an important question that people are asking. They know that charities, whether you're a hospice, whether you're an animal charity, whatever you're doing, they want to know that your charitable work is still continuing, what the implications are on this pandemic, on that charity, um, and to know that their continued support will, will help us, you know, when we're out of this situation. Yeah, I think there's some really good points. I think you said about um, forget fundraising, but focus on relationship building. I think, I think something in these circumstances, everyone's human. We're all in the in the same boat, and and I think sometimes it comes down to the simple thing of picking up the phone and speaking to your supporters because you care about them, but they also mm. care about you. You know, your charity is something that they care a lot about. And as you were saying, Michael, I think they would probably be very interested in knowing how, yeah, how the charity is doing in, in this particular time. And, and I think so many charities are so nervous of, of talking about legacies and they don't want to be seen to be profiteering uh, in this particular time. But I think, yeah, it comes down to relationships, like you say, and, and yeah, talking to your supporters and, and making sure that, that they're okay and, and building that relationship as a way of, yeah, stewarding them. Mm. And I guess linked to Michael's point, you know, if you want to pick on, pick up on that sort of uh, autonomy, competence, relatedness, you have to understand your donors to know how that then expresses itself practically. So the more you know about the donors, you more you understand, you know, what they want to be competent at, for example. So, um, yeah, I'd absolutely second that point that, that Michael made there it's going to be unique to each charity i think how you sort of actually operationalize those ideas yeah definitely okay um thank you both um uh, moving on to this next question um what needs to adapt in legacy strategy mm. it's a good question and i thought um the first thought that i had actually again i'm doing lots of stealing from um other experts today which is uh, it's always a good route isn't it it's uh you know find people who know lots about it and then quote them but um uh, I was involved in a conversation with somebody called Michael Rosen, who's, um, uh, amongst other things, a plan giving expert in the States. And he made a really important point, actually, that, um, you know, the, the kind of the flippant answer would be, in a way, you know, not much in the sense that if you've got a good strategy, you know, it's still a good strategy in the sense that it's, um, you know, we should always have been up until this this crisis really as michael said you know trying to understand our donors trying to understand the core motivations for legacies generally and kind of building our um, strategy and our stewardship particularly around that and so if you've already doing that you're in a really good starting point you're in a really good place but i think michael's point was that people that have maybe been getting away with um poorer practice or bad strategy or whatever you might want to call it that in these kind of circumstances that's really going to be heightened so I thought that was a really that was a really important point he made so I thought I'd steal it for this podcast <laughs> and uh, share it with the listeners so you know good strategy is still good good strategy and it, it relies on the very points that Michael was making earlier but then I suppose um, there's another kind of I suppose obvious maybe a slightly more tactical point but um, this focus on digital for stewardship again specifically um, so 
I think obviously our donors, and again, this is pre pre COVID, but um, you know, our donors were already really digitally savvy. And I know speaking personally, I was probably when I actually looked into the statistics as to how older audiences were using digital tools, I was actually surprised at um, how many different tools they use and what they're engaging with, how long they're spending online. Um, the stat that always sticks in my mind is that uh, our baby boomer audiences are spending two hours more a week online than people aged 16 to 34. And that was uh, that was before the pandemic. So um, so that, you know, that surprised me at the time. And I guess just sort of seeing how people are changing now, obviously, you know, people are having to get even more au fait with digital tools. You know, we, we managed to get my mum on Zoom the other day, which was uh, quite a feat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, people are more and more au fait with digital tools. And I suppose, you know, again, you know, no one knows exactly how the pandemic's going to play out, but I've seen news stories saying that it might, we might be in a situation where older people have to be shielded for a really long time, you know, 12, 18 months or something. Um, and so, you know, traditional offers like legacy events to steward our donors won't be open to us so we're going to have to think smartly about how to how to use digital to do that sorry <laughs> i was on mute and <laughs> um, over to you michael do you have anything to to add to that I'm always interested. Claire always does the figures. Uh, I always <laughs> yeah. And then you bring it to life, Michael. The back chat. We've known each other many years. Um, <laughs> she comes in with the detail. I'm pleased to say, based on um, Claire's figures, that my own dear mother uh, is not on social media and never do I want her to be. The worst <laughs> thing imaginable is for me to load up Facebook and see that she's somehow um, poking or prodding people on Facebook. <laughs> I'm pleased about that. Um, do you know, in terms of the uh, of the question, I mean, obviously, I agree with Claire. Do you know, I'd, I'd go back a stage and say that the one thing that I think this this time is teaching us is the fact that there needs to be a legacy strategy to begin with. I think um, what's happened generally is that an awful lot of organisations have perhaps thought, do you know what, we'll provide an online wills offering or we'll provide a free wills offering and I'm not saying that's wrong um, per se, um, but there's no strategy behind it. I think mm. sometimes we've failed to look at what's the long-term proposition of our organization and how do we steward donors and show them that this is a natural extension of their support. We've, we've certainly seen an awful lot of people on various forums saying that they're suddenly getting in touch with these will writing agencies, et cetera, Actually, if this shows us anything, it's that we need a legacy strategy. We needed one before, mm. we need one now, we need one um, beyond this. We need to harness um, long-term support. It's not a quick win. You know, including a gift in your will to a charity is a, is a huge decision. It's not one that should be taken lightly. It takes longer than 10 minutes online to make a decision to include part of your estate, whatever you've got, doesn't matter if you're, you know, a, a fundraiser and, and therefore not rich, um, let me just state that, or if you're a multimillionaire, whatever you've got, whatever you've built up in your lifetime in terms of assets, to include something to a charity is a huge decision. And that's something that we shouldn't be rushing people as, as fundraisers. And I think I just say the other um, point 
um, in terms of adapting legacy strategy. For those people who've had a strategy, got a strategy, are running it, what changes should they be making now with this pandemic is that they should be looking at the needs of their donor. So one of the adaptions uh, we've made in terms of strategy, and it, it relates to legacies, it's not a gifts in will specific campaign, is as a local hospice, um, and I've, you know, I've only been joined for uh, coming up for six months, for 17 years, like many hospices, they have run a wills week. And we're gonna continue to run our wills week this year. And we've sat back and we've really thought about that in some degree of detail. Now, I want to be clear that there's no gifts in wills messages in that. Um, there never has been because we steward donors um, and then we offer a will because we believe that everybody should have an up-to-date will to reflect their wishes. But the changes that we've made this year is to really emphasise the fact that um, during this pandemic, as a leading health organisation throughout West Suffolk, we believe it's our duty to equip our supporters with the tools that they need as we look at um, death, dying and grief. And a will is a very important part of that. So we ask for a donation um, in return for that will, but we're certainly um, making sure that we're providing people with the tools that they need we're looking after them in the hope that some people will make a decision to obviously include a gift, but that's always got to be at the donor's choice. And what would you both say to, to charities who, had, who have been planning perhaps um, legacy or gifts and wills events? Um, do you think there's obviously been talk about mm. online events or um, is there a sort of a yeah, digital alternative? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, obviously, you know, we're recording this via Zoom <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's uh, other video conferencing applications are available. But um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's really easy, intuitive tool to use. And um, I suppose one of the reasons I like events, again, in the um, pre-pandemic world is for me, they appeal to sort of two core motivations for legacy giving which is um, people have a need to feel like they are valued and important individuals and they also have a need to feel like they're part of the community so I love an event in the sense that an event you know you get the invite even if you can't come and that makes you feel special important and valuable and you come along and you're part of a community which um, I think is is lovely so um, so yes virtual events events run digitally I think can help to um as well as you know a lot of we can call donors as michael was saying and that is really helpful in terms of um helping people to feel special but just being able to to bring back that sense of community that sense of relatedness we're talking about i think um virtual events can do that but then there's also you know potentially um other digital tools that we can we can use to sort of replicate that that sense of community so um uh i wrote a blog last year actually it's just everything all time is distorted now isn't it but uh, following the um the conference that um uh, iof ran on legacies and was just talking about how um, various brands are actually using um communities to um to sort of value care for 
communicate with their, their super fans and how you know we could potentially do more of that in the, the legacy space especially you know given those points as to how many of our audiences are already there in the in the digital space so actually absolutely events but also other ways to to create community as well as to make donors feel valued i think yeah i think you'd uh, definitely call um yeah legacy donors super fans in the chat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i think um just what you were saying around um, the digital events, even if you do have um, a donor who instead of just picking up the phone, if, if they are able to have a Zoom mm. call, the difference it makes to seeing someone's face mm. in terms of feeling connected to someone, it makes such a huge difference. Um, yeah. So even that as well, um, to go one step further beyond just picking up the phone, if, if they do yeah. have the capabilities of having a Zoom call. Um, and actually something we mentioned um, on the previous podcast is that um, a lot of donors might be in that older age bracket who are self-isolating and who probably love to have the opportunity to have a chat with someone mm. beyond, you know, their usual friends and family. And um, it could make a real difference to their day, just having having a having a nice sort of cup of tea and a chat with, with someone at a charity that they care about. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to question number three, um, what can charities learn from this time in terms of legacy income? So this is one where I'm probably going to lean very heavily on Michael because this is your area of expertise, isn't it, Michael? So, uh, um, I, but I, I suppose one thing I just perhaps wanted to drop in here was really, um, so thinking about, you know, as income comes into the, the charity that, um, obviously, very sadly, we need to be aware of, um, as we always do again, I think, and, you know, very legacy funders are, sort of, are very good at this, but we need to be aware of the um, the likelihood of, of speaking to bereaved family or friend executors, personal executors. Um, but I suppose the, what makes that, what's different about the pandemic is, um, and we've had some um, really important conversations about this as part of the the IOF's legacy special interest group, um, these people potentially are more likely to have suffered complex, complicated bereavement. You know, we've all seen these um, very sad stories about people who weren't able to say goodbye to their loved one in the way that they would have wanted to. They can't necessarily have the, you know, the big funeral and the wake that they, they would have wanted to. So it's likely that um, that people who um, legacy management colleagues are are talking to, communicating with, are going to be in perhaps more of a complicated grief situation than otherwise would have been the case. Um, and again, I don't want to sort of try and position myself as a as a bereavement expert, but I know for just as one example of what might happen in in that kind of a space is you know there's lots of kind of latent emotion. I think therefore. Um, quite often it might be anger that people are feeling, you know, that angry that they couldn't get to say goodbye and that they couldn't, as we were saying, you know, have the, the send off they would have wanted. And sometimes that is going to be directed perhaps at uh, the charity representative, just as the, you know, the first person that they, they talk to. So I think, you know, being, as I said, I think legacy management people are very good at this actually, but I think just being, you know, hyper aware of that and, um, um, and sort of equipped to, to know um, what people might be experiencing and the sorts of perhaps more difficult conversations they might be having, I think would be helpful at this time. Sorry, <laughs> Michael, did you have anything to, to add to that? I, I, well, I think, I think Claire's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the charity 
sector, particularly those involved in end of life, um, should feel proud of the, the lengths that we've gone to. And, and St Nicholas mm. Hospice Care is certainly at the forefront of this in terms of, you know, losing loved ones is difficult at any mm. time. Um, but in terms of the digital means they've brought in, I mean, I know that we're um, very often conducting Skype meetings, etc., between those people who are on our ward in the hospice and their loved ones due to um, the restrictions at this time. So everything's is being done that is possible mm. in accordance with the restrictions. And that goes on um, in charities throughout the United Kingdom and, and beyond. And everyone should feel very proud of their efforts. I think, you know, th there's a lot going on in terms, or there's a lot going on in terms of legacy income, and there's gonna be a lot going on in terms of legacy income as a result of this situation for at least a year, in my view. Um, mm there's a couple of things. What we've got to remember is that the bulk of legacy income uh, is made up of property. Because um, as United Kingdom residents, um, we're following the Americans more and more where uh, we want to take property ownership. Um, that forms the largest part of our estate. So what's happening now with regards to properties being sold is that obviously we've got all of these isolation restrictions. Um, it's incredibly difficult to sell property. Many estate agents are booking interest in properties for people who are interested in buying um, properties owned by deceased, but not able to show people around, etc. So there's gonna be a natural delay there. Um, there's also going to be um, a reduced level of um, estate value if you were to sell shares and stocks that form part of people's estate at the moment because we've obviously seen stock prices um, plummet um, on the whole and that, that's going to have an implication. And in addition to that, we're also seeing delays in terms of uh, the timescales for probate applications to go through and with regards to SME and Ford um, notifications coming through. Um, and I know that's something Remember a Charity have been rightly, actively um, involved in. So, you know, I think across the board, there's a couple of things that in general we need to consider. Delays, but also the um, decrease in values of the assets that form part of the estate. So, and that's gonna have big implications, particularly for the charities that rely heavier on legacy income. Um, you know, we know that there are gonna be more people um, dying during this time. We're sad to hear that, um, but there's gonna be a lot more implications for the people dealing with the probate um, the executors and the legacy administrators, as well as the fact that obviously a lot of these professionals involved, whether they're the estate agents, whether they're the solicitors, etc., they're not operating from their office. And whilst mm -hmm. as a country, I think we've done really well to adapt to this working from home and those are practices that should have been in, in place probably anyway, but there are some um, natural functions that aren't happening as quickly because of that. You know, the, the contact is not always quite as good. Um, the restrictions, you know, even in terms of surveying land, um, mm. getting valuations, we're going to notice an awful lot of implications there. We're going to notice a lot of implications on properties sat empty during this time. You know, there's insurance implications there, legal implications, and there's financial implications. And ultimately, 
the beneficiaries of those estates, which include charities, are, are going to really um, feel the force of it. And, and all that we can really do is, is sit back, work closely with the executors and the family members, and I don't mean physically closely, but I, I mean virtually closely, you know, to really bring about the best conclusion that we can. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Um, when uh, when we were speaking to Matthew from, from ILM in the previous podcast, he said um, encouragingly that having been in the legacy sector through the um, through the recession, he said that, um, you know, bounce back from that. And he is um, very hopeful and and it's encouraging to hear that he, yeah, he is confident that the legacy uh, sector mm -hmm. will, will bounce back from this as well. But um, yeah, we have to be resilient. <laughs> we will. And it's interesting that he said that. I, I was working in probate during the recession. I, I've aged myself by saying that. I'm nowhere near as old <laughs> as Matthew. Um, but what happened was uh, overnight we went literally from the point that people were gazumping people in terms of property to the point that there was the um, uh, well-known uh, building society that first crashed that led on to into the recession and you know within the space of a year the property market had changed beyond belief mm -hmm. you know we suddenly started seeing the first people in negative equity in absolutely years but then it bounced back very quickly and i think what one of the duties of legacy officers will be to maximize as always and as they're required to do in law their job is to maximize the value of the estate I would always remind legacy officers that, you know, there is a question as to whether or not they sell assets now or whether they sell assets in the future in order to maximise the value. That, of course, is dependent on the charity and, and the charity trustees. Um, and I know a lot of charities at this time need the cash. But mm -hmm. you must also look at how can you enhance the assets that your charity is benefiting from. Great, thank you. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to skip straight to the to the last question, um, which is, do you have any words of encouragement for legacy fundraisers during this uncertain time? Mm. Yeah, well, I think it's very helpful to think about, you know, what we do in legacies, not as this sort of big scary ask that we make of people, but to remember that really what we're doing as legacy fundraisers is we're helping people to meet these really deeply held human needs. You know, there's, there's good, again, academic evidence out there that people have this, this need to leave something behind them. You know, in the broader sense of the word, that might be just to family or um, it might be a, you know, the painting that they've drawn or whatever it might be. But we've all got this really strong desire to leave a legacy. And actually, you know, what we're doing as legacy fundraisers is is I think, you know, we're giving people a gift. We're giving people this amazing opportunity to live on and carry on their influence past their own death. You know, if we're going to get really existential to defeat death in some way. Um, and I think it's just really important to remember that, you know, that is even more important now than it has been, um, you know, leading up to this point. It's such, a, it's such an amazing thing, I think, that, you know, legacy fundraisers within charities are doing, giving people this, this wonderful opportunity. And, you know, that is, a, that is a brilliant gift to be able to give people. And like I said, I think that, that resonates even more now when people are very sort of conscious of mortality and death and 
so you know carry on colleagues because i think you're doing you know you're doing brilliant work and and offering people something something wonderful thank you claire yeah keep calm and carry on <laughs> michael yeah i i i agree i think the thing I have always loved about Legacies is uh, one, the amount of money it raises um, and taking the credit for that, um, but also the fact that it is a long-term proposition. The people who are going to struggle or, or the departments within a fundraising team that are struggling now, quite naturally, are events fundraisers as mass participation events cannot take place. Actually, with Legacy fundraisers, you're harnessing relationships over a period of time. You're looking at what the charity is going to do as, in terms of its proposition a long time into the future. You know, 95-year-olds want to know what you're going to do in 30 years' time, not what you're doing next week, because they're going to live for another 30 years. That hasn't changed. This is a blip, hopefully, in um, the life that we are leading. And actually... Um, this is a time when actually I'd be focusing on legacy donors. I, I'd be focusing on that whole stewardship. And if it's possible, um, I would be um, transferring some of the people who perhaps work in other fundraising department, like events and community that are more limited at this time, to go over to the, the legacy department and help them with the stewardship of donors, getting that proposition um, clear, um, and making sure that those supporters are okay during during these times. There's still plenty of work to be done. And actually, I think that in terms of legacy marketing and stewardship programs, I think that that is an area of fundraising that is probably the least affected of all areas of fundraising mm -hmm. during this time. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think um, something that, that I keep thinking about is that sort of... Um, from adversity like with everyone is becoming more innovative and creative and resilient mm. and I think everyone is going to look at their roles and their jobs very differently after this and um and hopefully it will make not just the legacy sector but the charity sector more more flexible and diverse and and yeah hopefully more more effective after this mm. and um and think about consumers um we were saying the other day that um obviously there's been that huge spike in will writing because people are being faced with their own mortality but hopefully it might create a sort of shift in the mindset of the consumer to think about the importance of having a will mm. but then also the consumers are seeing firsthand the importance of the work that charities are doing for their beneficiaries their communities and those two things hand in hand could help with with their legacy marketing as well so i think um, there's plenty to be to be hopeful for Indeed. I, I agree. I, one of the things I've always said is that people should always have a will. And we know that in this country, people sometimes don't and people leave it too late. And I think part of the job of charities is to reminding people that you should always have an up to date will. We know it's very difficult to execute a will at the moment with regards to um, the witnesses of the signatures mm. and the archaic law we're still working under. You know, um, I'm sitting back with my will anybody knows that if anything happens to me during this time for charities benefit and uh, dear friends and family and loved ones from my mm. momentous estate that i built up over <laughs> these years in, in charity fundraising and the fantastic wages we've been paid yeah. 
<laughs> and I did see as well, just alongside, you know, the formal will, there was a document that um, a palliative care consultant shared, actually, and it was um, just a series of questions to think through around, you know, this is what I'd like to say sorry for. These are my special memories of you. And it was just a really lovely document. So, you know, it would be great if people also, I think, sat down and thought about, you know, remembered that we're all mortal and we need to you know have these good conversations and leave these wonderful messages behind as well as that kind of formal planning documents as well so yeah things that we were sorry for i haven't got enough paper <laughs> <laughs> all right um i think that's it for the questions um thank you both so much for your both academic and practical expertise um i think it's been a really helpful and positive conversation um and uh michael thank you for behaving yourself any listeners who are familiar with michael will will not be surprised i had to warn him not to make any rude jokes and <laughs> <laughs> um, if anyone listening does have any further questions um, and they want to get in touch with either of you what's the best way to do so uh, I'm happy to be emailed or contacted on Twitter. So uh, my email is a nice easy one. It's clear with an I uh, at legacyfundraising.co.uk. And my Twitter handle is the worst thing to say out loud, which obviously I wasn't thinking very carefully about when I created it. But uh, Cleary Jane R. So C L A I R E uh, Y J A N E R. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and for me, uh, it's michael.clark without an E at uh, stnh.org.uk or on Twitter is at Michael J.E. Clark. Much more sensible than mine, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will put those in the, uh, what is to call them, show notes as uh, other podcasts refer to them as they get. Um, I'll make sure that those are written down somewhere for listeners. Um, and just to end on one final positive note, what are you both looking forward to most when we come out of lockdown? Good question. <laughs> Do you know, uh, most of my life at the moment seems to revolve around food <laughs> it's like the one constant in the day isn't it is which meals you're going to have and so um my daughter and I've been planning which uh, which restaurants we're going to go to so we're still having a bit of a debate about where we're going to go but I think possibly the local uh, Himalayan restaurant for some momos that's kind of at the top of the list at the moment oh and seeing family <laughs> but I have quite a lot of the family is currently cocooned with me as well but I should uh... <laughs> but you know Momo's family. <laughs> <laughs> Just in the nick of time there, depending on who listens to this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mum. <laughs> Michael, what are you looking forward to? Well, my mum won't be listening to this podcast, so I can miss family out altogether. Um, I, I'm looking forward to a draft pint. I've always appreciated a draft pint, but mm. when you can't have a proper draft pint, it's just not the same in tins. Wow. I live opposite a pub, Michael, so the temptation is uh, it's just sitting there over the road, but in the, in the barrels. Just. <laughs> I can't wait to go and sit in a pub garden. This weather is just uh, making you long for a pub garden. Yeah. But think of the money you're saving. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you both so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, our next podcast will be announced soon. But if there are any topics that anyone would like us to cover in the future, please do email us at info at rememberacharity.org.uk. Um, and thank you. And goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.